Hello, I'm Michael H. Dewberry, host of Artroverted, a podcast about the art world. Each week, I speak with leaders and changemakers in the arts, from artists to museum directors and everyone in between. We discuss their experiences, the communities they serve, and why they've dedicated their lives to art. In this first episode, I speak with Amy Lewis Hoffland, the Senior Director of the Crow Museum of Asian Art at the University of Texas at Dallas. Amy has served as the director for 18 years, shepherding it from a small family collection to a university museum with a global reach. In our conversation, we talk about her career and the role of museums and museum directors in the 21st century. We recorded our conversation on April 25th, 2020, during the middle of the shelter-in-place order issued across the United States. Without further ado, let's jump in. You had a very interesting trajectory into your um, position, your career. Started out in education as my elementary school art teacher. I mean, you were busy before that and accomplished, and now you are the director of a university art museum. I guess I'd like to figure out how that happened. And just first of all, how did you get into the arts? Did you come from an artistically minded, creative family or? I did. Um, I would say that my mother is a very big part of that. She's a, a creative person who has the creative thought process, but never really became an artist. And she's now a naturalist at our farm. So it comes, it's come through my mother in different ways. But um, as a child, I'd had, I was born with cleft lip and cleft palate. So I had a lot of reconstructive surgeries through my childhood and I couldn't play sports. And there were things that weren't available to me, but my mother made sure that art was available to me. So I always had great art lessons and it was just a place where I found kind of a harbor um, and it was something I loved and was good at. And she was always there with me, making art with me. Do you have any of those pieces still? I still have some pieces that I made during your <laughs> class at Armstrong. I think I have some pieces that you gave me. At, from oh, Armstrong. really? Uh-huh. That you, where you, I think I know I have one where you drew a picture of me. Um, I do. We have a lot of my art. My parents have kept all of my art from kindergarten to age 47. 48. <laughs> part, of the, part of the archive. I love it. That'll go into the archive. Um, so what was your first job in the art world? I, let's see. My first job in the art world was at the University of Texas at Austin. And my senior year, I worked at Bass Performance Hall. And I was part of the Fine Arts Council at UT Austin. And, and Bass is right next to the Fine Arts Building. And we were, I was an usher. It was a great job because I could see all of the performances that were coming through Austin for free. Um, and then, so that was a really fun place to work. That was my first That job. is really fun. What was your worst job in the art oh world? Job. You know, I have to amend, I have to edit that a little bit. My Actually, before I worked at Bass, I was the art teacher at Brush Ranch Camps in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I spent seven summers and um, going back and forth in different roles, but teaching art was the first year I, that was at 92. I taught art out in the beautiful Sangre de Cristo mountains, Northeast of Santa Fe. And that was a great job. And um, the worst art job or the worst job ever? <laughs> the worst art job. <laughs> Cause I definitely can answer the second one. Uh huh. Um, the worst art, gosh, that's hard. The worst art job. You know, I, um, Fall of 98, I worked in a gallery 
And I loved the gallery. It was the Karen Mitchell Frank Gallery. I loved Karen. I loved the family. I loved the women that I worked with there. Chris Worley was one of my colleagues at the Karen Mitchell Frank Gallery. I did not love selling art. I felt I, I didn't understand how to enroll the visitor to the gallery. So I kind of was like giving them my art teacher museum education spiel. And I was not good at closing the deal. So that was hard for me because it, it wasn't about money for me. Had you worked in a museum before that? Before, yes. I'd, I'd been through my internships at the Meadows, the Dallas Museum of Art, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So I'd had a lot of exposure to the non-commercial side of the art world. And you were comfortable in that space. And, and <laughs> education has always kind of been your your passion, or at least your strength. Yes. So then you made it through education, you went through the crow, and I guess we'll kind of get there. But when did you know that you made it? Mm, good question. Thank you for asking that. Let me think about it for a minute. Well, there have been several times. Um, you know, I, there is a tour that I like to talk about that I gave. And there are two moments. So I'll tell two stories. They're short. And um, the first one was a tour with some students in Dallas. It was a private school. And there was a young Indian, a boy of Indian American, or I'm sorry, there was a boy of Indian descent, um, India from Asia. And I noticed him and toward the end of the tour, this was probably 15 years into my 21 career, year career at the Crow. And I noticed him and I asked him to end the tour with the story of Ganesha because I'd watched him kind of register that sculpture in the gallery. And it was this beautiful archive or this beautiful sort of light-filled storytelling that he offered his little class. And after they left, the teacher came back over to me and she said, you have no idea what just happened. She said, he has not spoken up or out loud in the two weeks he's been here. He had just arrived. I didn't know that. Just arrived from India to the United States. And um, I just thought, that's what this museum is here for. That's what I'm here for. That's why we have an educator as a director. And then I would say the second way I would answer that story was meeting the Dalai Lama in 2015. And just knowing that was a wish I'd had for 10 years that he would come to Dallas and I would have the opportunity to visit with him. And it happened. And that was just sort of a moment of, of realizing um, this museum is, has become successful in the way that I, I hoped it would. So would that be probably your greatest career accomplishment as well? No, I think I have to answer that question with merging and shifting the museum over to the university. Because what it took, and the Crow, <clears throat> just for context, the Crow Museum has been operated by the Crow Family Foundation since 1998, which is a family-initiated endeavor. And we had worked really hard to broaden public support, um, especially after the passing of Margaret Crow in 2014, to really help the museum stand up in its own independent sort of structure. And I, I think going to the university is the, if we, if we were 50 years ahead of us and we look back, we'll see that as the moment where we really released the museum to be publicly supported. So, um, and I, I think I didn't, you know, there are a lot of things about the acquisition that I didn't know, but um, I really think that's part of 
what needed to happen in order for us to grow in the future. So it was, it was in many ways a good lesson in let go of the things that you think are important and look like 50 years out, which is a great way to sort of live with this idea that we're creating, we're planting seeds for trees and shade that we can't see, but we know it will make a huge difference in the future. So that, and that's a, that's a hard professional decision to make. It's been a, a hard professional decision to stay through the transition because so much of the museum is um, changing. Um, but it's also changing into this remarkable support structure of the UT system, University of Texas system, and that is limitless. Do you think that Margaret had that same vision or that she lived that way as well? I do. I think she saw us a, a long time before we saw us. You know, I think there are people in our lives that have that capacity to see us into a future developed self that we don't, we don't see ourselves in yet. Um, I think my, like my plastic surgeon was one of those people that worked with me. And I think Margaret was certainly that. I think it took courage to raise her hand at a family board meeting of mostly men, <laughs> mostly sons and, and uh, business people and say, I really think this city needs a center for Asian art and culture. We have a lot to learn about these cultures that are moving here in great numbers um, in the 80s and 90s. And what is our responsibility to be in a space of conscious cultural understanding for that? So it was, I do, I think she saw that it had a much bigger future. And she loved the University of Texas at Austin and had been very familiar with Harry Ransom and all that he did for expanding the cultural base of UT Austin and I think that, that appealed to her. And I think this, it, you know, it didn't happen in her lifetime, but she certainly planted the seeds for it. Yeah, I mean, that was really interesting. Do you think the previous directors of the museum had that as well? At the Crow? Mm-hmm. And how many were there before you? <laughs> there and how were, did you get there? Depends on how you define director. Um <clears throat> There, there have been, I would say there have been two operational directors before me. And um, how did I get there is quite through the back door, um, the door of uncertainty and disbelief. I was working at the gallery, at the Karen Mitchell Friend Gallery. I was teaching full-time as an adjunct professor at UT, uh, UNT. I have to get my universities and my Texases straight. University of Texas, University of North Texas. And that was difficult. It was a 42-mile uh, commute each way. And so it was a test semester for me, and I really missed the art museum. I missed teaching um, young people. That's really my gift. And... Um, I was invited to interview for this corporate collection that was opening downtown. And I was like, oh, I'm not interested. You know, I'd been at the Met three months earlier. So I had a lot, a, a little bit of an attitude <laughs> and deserved about museums and their place in the world. And I decided to accept the interview. My dad suggested that maybe knowing the Crow family could be a way of strengthening my own life and he talked about how important they were to our city and so I sat down with Trammell S. Crow in November of 1998 and I was just um, so awed by the way he was thinking about the art museum. It wasn't a repository of objects, it wasn't a legacy to his father, it was not 
um, a side gig or a vanity project. It was a very serious, long vision effort to um, really educate. Like education was all through the way he was thinking about this collection. And it was, it was there in a way that was urgent and necessary. He talked about the migration of Asian American families to North Texas as the single most important event of his lifetime. And that sentence there just stopped me in my tracks. And in graduate school, I studied, I had a a certificate in technology and I studied how to connect audiences to works of art when they can't physically get there. So we, we knew that a lot of the Asian families were moving into Plano and Richardson and the Northern regions of North Texas. And that that would be really technology and connecting curriculum to those classrooms. was his first priority. And I think, um, that was intoxicating is the word I like to use. And so I re- the next morning I went into the Dean's office at the university of North Texas and begged forgiveness and resigned. I finished out the semester of course and um, started working. I was still finished out the semester, but I was also working for Trammell. So my first assignment was to write an essay on Shintoism for the website. And from there, it was just this whirlwind. And we, we had, at the time, when I was interviewed, there had been Peggy Boer was kind of the planning director, and then Jan Stewart had been hired. She interviewed me. Jan Stewart was um, a very important Asian art historian from the Smithsonian and has been to the British Museum. And she interviewed me, and uh, she accepted the position, but then her husband needed to be placed through the Department of Energy in Dallas, and it just didn't work out. So that kind of fell apart. And then um, we were without a director for a while, and um, Kimberly Bush, who's now at the Asian Art Museum of San Francisco, was our director for about a year. Um, and then we had Bonnie Speed, who really showed up in Dallas from the Cedarhurst Center for the Arts in Southern Illinois with a background in Chinese painting from the University of Kansas, showed up in Dallas to be my mentor. She stayed a year and she helped me grow um, grow into myself as a professional at age 28, 29. Um, and when she left, she went on to Emory. She's still there as the director of the Carlos Museum at Emory. She might have, I think she's pretty sure she's there. When she left, she recommended that I be placed as interim. And it was terrifying. I remember we we were on a in her car and she mentioned it and I just felt my whole world shift, like my, you know, that whole feeling you get when you know that things are about to be very different. And, you know, it was hard. Trammell wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. I was not the sort of appropriate hire for an Asian art museum without a PhD in Asian art history. But that wasn't what the crow was about, especially in our first 15 years. It was definitely about impact relevance, being magnetic to the community. And it took a different kind of leader for that. And I I do think we took too long to um, strengthen the curatorial side. You know, I think we, we worked with curators in San Francisco um, at a distance with Clarence Shangra. Uh, we worked at a distance with wonderful Karen Smith in New York. Um, but an earlier commitment to full-time curatorial staff would have helped the Crow in the balance of, you know, what are the optics of this museum? What, how serious is this museum as a um, 
you know, as an expression of how Dallas is designing the art, the Asian art history of its own city. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because prior to that, there had not been an established center repository for Asian art that was independent of the Dallas Museum of Art, which the museum is right down the street from. Um, And becoming that, uh, it's it's still played a dominant force and is what the largest um, institution devoted to the collection of Asian art in Texas or... We like to say Southwest. Southwest. There we go. So much broader, much broader space. But I guess part of the, the evolution and, and connecting it uh, to the community and, and growing as a museum um, might also be part of the collection. What are the strengths of the collection? I'm wondering if you could just tell us briefly what kind of how it started and, and what it comprises of and, and where it's at now. I'd love to. So, The reason Margaret raised her hand at a family board meeting in 1997 um, is is the result of her family's great love, and particularly her husband, Trammell Crow, the longtime real estate developer here in Dallas, his great love of Asia. He was self-taught. He was a voracious reader. He, uh, from a young age, um, he attended North Dallas High School. She attended Hockaday. She was from a very... Um, wealthy family. They lived at 3600 Armstrong in Highland Park. And he was from a family that was very religious and very poor. They lived in East Dallas. And the two met um, her senior year at UT. She was at UT Austin. And they, he was a, he was an adventurer. He let, when he, before he could travel, he was traveling through books. And so, um, really rose to the ranks through the ranks at the bank where he worked in Dallas. And once he met Margaret, her family's company hired him on. That was a dog at grain company. And that company did very well that when, when Margaret's parents, they died actually the summer before her senior year. Um, she inherited the family business and the fortune. Um, they were one of the, it was one of the wealthiest families in Highland Park by those terms um, in 1939, I believe. So, he um, was able to be supported in the new company and paired up with Harry Stimmons to develop the Stimmons Corridor. He had this concept of a World Trade Center with a large central atrium and lots of little showrooms where um, business people could come and exchange goods wholesale and support retail across the world. And that was a very interesting way of putting Dallas on the international map. It also led Trammell, because of his love of studying history and religion and philosophy, um, led him to relationships with the Chinese and with the Japanese. And so similar world trade centers were built in Shanghai and Tokyo. And throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they were traveling on their yacht, the Michaela Rose, and they had another yacht before that. Um, and they were taking business, you know, business relationships and clients around the world and bringing back or seeing art and then purchasing it here through the auction houses um, on a pretty ambitious scale. I mean, I think when the museum question was raised in 97, um, there were about 8,000 objects that needed to be assessed 
across the United States. Because if there was a hotel that was developed in New Hampshire, that's the Asian art would go there for the lobby. Um, many of the towers in the northeast section of downtown, every elevator or vestibule had a work of art in it. And it often had a label. Trammell was very Trammell Sr. was very committed to education, just like his son. And so he was always teaching. And this is really probably our first incarnation of being a museum was in the corporate setting. I think that's a blessing and a curse because when the museum was conceived and scholar Clarence Shangri-La was brought in from the Asian Art Museum of San Francisco, the public had only known the Crow Museum or the Crow Collection one way, and that was at the Anatole Hotel or visiting the offices of Trammell Crow Company or any of the the parent, other offices. And I think that that hurt our reputation. There's, there's been some work to do around the branding of the Crow. Um, the perception is that they just plucked hotel art and put it in a museum and call it a, called it a museum. But in reality, there were museum quality pieces in the hotel. And so all of this is true. And the curators also, Rick Brattel was involved as an advising director, um, of course, Clarence Shangra, we brought in specialists for each cultural area. They chose just 611 out of 8,000. And the rule that they used as they looked at the collection was, can this be in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts? Is it good enough to sort of meet their standard for um, the quality? And I think we didn't do a good enough job telling that story early on. And so we've kind of fought this confusion of, is it corporate art in a museum, you know. So to talk about the collection, it's very much a heart, 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 you know, collectors have a heart connection to their works. Trammell had a high, high question for how he felt about the collection. And he would say, I don't know what it is, but these objects move me. And he was voracious in a way of having Chinese jades around him, even on his person. When I met him in 98, he would pull jades out of his pocket and we would, he would want to talk about it. He was in his 90s. So I think, um, I guess he was in his late 80s at that time. But um, it really was personal. This, this collection that came to be a museum was personal. So we can't call it encyclopedic. We can't call it focused in a way of a particular canon of art history. Um, this is a museum that represents a point of view that a Texas family has and had about Asian art um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And after, since then, perhaps in some ways strategically and in some ways not, we've added about 400 works to the collection. We've had a few gifts along the way. Um, Trammell S. Crow has generously given a wonderful samurai um, to us in 2014. So there have been some... Um, wonderful additions to the collection, but there does, what we, are, what we don't have is a collection strategy and really looking at where are the holes in the collection, what is missing. We would love to have some Chinese ceramics. I think we definitely need to strengthen the Japanese painting um, offerings of the collection. And I think now that we're in the context of a university, that, that whole question will be answered in a different way. So in some ways, it's kind of good that we're just beginning the, the acquisition process. There's a long answer. That's great. No, but that's great. And I think it's really interesting that, I mean, he really was before his time in, uh, in putting art in hotels, in which today you have hotels that are springing up that are, 
their marketing strategy is centered around an art collection, whether it's the Hall Arts Museum, which is a stone's throw from from, from the museum, Hall Arts Museum, Hall Arts Hotel, <laughs> trying to market itself as maybe not as a museum, but it's it's the hotel, it's the museum hotel. And the, right, it definitely the, is, yeah. And then you have 21C, which is a really interesting um, kind of um, collecting focused hotel. Um, I think that's really interesting. And, and it is impressive. You selected really impressive works too. Uh, when you go into some of those spaces, they're monumental. Yeah. It's presented well. Yeah. I think um, one of the methodologies of creating the crow was that it, they wanted, we wanted the visitor to feel like you were walking into the crow's home. And I'm sure that was present at the Anatole as well, that it wasn't a hotel. It was a palace. You know, this is a palace where you get to stay and um, there are works of art as if you were, you were staying in a very nice home, you know, who knows where. <laughs> and, and you basically were, you were on the ground floor of the off of the travel car center. You know, yeah. it's always part of the, part of the family uh, space, I guess. And the crow has always been described as kind of a, a hidden gem or a jewel box mm -hmm. uh, because of the intimacy of the space and the installation. And, that's definitely you know, part I'm of glad it. you mentioned that because I actually want to turn a question back to you. That phrasing is receiving some, some, I will call it inquiry. Um, that, and maybe it's part of this um, idea that, you know, words matter and context matters. And we've had conversations lately that we need to stop using that phrase. I've used that phrase all along and it was what the first article in the Dallas morning news said about the crow, you know, the jewel box is open. And then this, and this idea, and I wonder what you think about this with your experience in decorative arts, that all art is not beautiful. All art is not a treasure. All art is not sort of that this idea of jewel box and treasure is not accessible to everyone. And that some people don't even have that context of what it is like to have a jewelry box. Um, and I, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, I think associating it with a treasure now in today's market-driven uh, art world has kind of a negative context in that it relates it to value, at least economic value, uh, which you know, the location of the museum too could be construed to having kind of a commercial purpose. Mm -hmm. But as far as treasures, uh, I think it has to be maybe about the spirit of the object. And objects have the ability to tell so many stories. And I think the hidden gem note might be uh, not very positive, actually. But I think what it's trying to describe or, or the, the ethic, of the, the ethos of it is that um, it is special and it is kind of an intimate experience. That's what I like to talk about. Sometimes how I mentioned the, the Frick Collection in New York, which is my favorite museum in the world. Um, Second favorite. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, um, you know, because you're in a home environment, the collection's amazing. Uh, they don't allow children or photography, which is something that really <laughs> does influence your experience um it's a very civilized place and uh you know there can be a lot of criticism for that for it being elitist and out of touch and they don't have really any didactics uh at all that are obvious or apparent um and they're working to change that but it's you know, definitely Margaret, very 
Margaret loved the Frick. I wonder if that, if she loved the Frick and she loved the gardener. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if those both were influences. I wish you were here to ask. Um, well, and the gardener is interesting because that's a, that's a very eclectic collection as well. It is. Uh, in the domestic it is. Space. Some connection there. And, um, you know, you use the word intimate. And I think that really is probably where to, where to go with that thinking because everybody loves a small museum, right? It's, mm-hmm. Museums, when you talk to people, they generally will tell you about an experience they had in a small museum. Um, and that's, this is a phrase that comes recently from Dr. Bertel, but I think it's true about the crow. We do have a lot of people that say, I love your museum. And part of that is that it's something you can do in under an hour. And I think for Dallas, it really is, um, it makes people proud when they come in, especially if they're of a minority culture. Um, to see that we are presenting works um, from Asia, uh, regardless of what culture you are. I think it makes us proud as a city that this is an international city. Um, so be interesting. But, yeah, I think being able to have an experience with a work of art, um, there's been several exhibitions, at least I've seen during my lifetime, that have changed the way that I think about art, its power, the possibilities of the medium. Um, and I'm wondering if there's maybe one experience you could share with maybe one work of art that has changed your life. The Crow? No, anywhere. Anywhere in the world? Mm-hmm. There is one that I go to and when, when I'm asked this question, and it's, it's in the O'Keefe Collection. And it, the title is something like After a Day with Juan. And I love the O'Keefe in Santa Fe. She's an artist that I've studied. She actually had a chapter of loving Asian art in her own, and probably her own life, but it was very influential in how she taught art when she was out in Canyon, Texas, teaching art at high school. And so After a Day with Juan is it's an incredible canvas and it's, it's neither a landscape or, I mean, I guess it's somewhat abstract, but it's all about the sky and the sky is something that I study in my own personal life. Um, but it is euphoric and, and it's just a total lift of the spirits. I mean, you can tell that whatever happened on their walk in Abiquiu that day was really special to her and very personal. And she captures it in the canvas. I think there are a few versions of this painting. The one I'm referring to is number 29. So I, I do fall toward and, and, and pull toward works that have the capacity to lift the spirit. Um, and I think healing and art come together in my work a lot. When I left University of Texas at Austin as a new graduate in 1994, I wanted to be an art therapist. I didn't, I, I'm happy that I got to be your teacher at Armstrong. But three months before that, I was uh, interviewing at George Washington University in D.C. to be in the art therapy program in graduate studies. And fortunately, Dr. Thomas called my house at the farm and talked to my dad and they, they cooked up an interview for me. So <laughs> I came back. And Dr. Thomas was the principal of Armstrong elementary. <laughs> yes. Yes. Same <laughs> principal. Um, and uh-huh. I'm so grateful. So um, I feel like art and healing have been part of my work and interests since the beginning. Um, and so that, that work of art is, is very uplifting to me. And I think art and healing is something that has gained a lot of momentum in, I don't know, the last decade. And 
you know, we're taping this during the time of COVID-19, which is this global pandemic, unlike anything we've ever seen. It's kind of the reason that the podcast is happening. And so now that we're in this creative time, we're forced to either create or at least be at home. Um, I'm wondering how you, uh, first of all, like personally, what what do you what what are you excited about for this time and also for the museum? How do we share this intimate experience that the crow has always offered to the world um, digitally? And I guess that also does circle back to your experience in the '90s, um, trying to to use at the beginning of technology, you know, connecting people with art. So two things have happened that I couldn't have predicted. Um, you know, my, my heart had been longing for a sabbatical. And I'm sorry that the reasons for this time are what they are. And, you know, Michael, I hope everybody in your family is well and remains well. And to all the listeners in, in addition to that. So there's sort of, there's that. And I recently said, I, I feel like I hoverboard, like I'm hovering over these existences. And one is that I'm very present to the trauma of the globe, right? That's there for all of us. And then there's kind of like taking care of the crow and and my family. And I I relate a lot. I, I like to create this concept of family wherever I am. So my two families or my family, you could say. Um, and so the first thing we're doing is making sure that our team is supported, employed, um, we're doing everything we can, and I have a lot of support from the university to create work for the front of house teams. Um, we don't. We hope we won't have to have any layoffs in the museum, and this is this is part of being in this place of stable, more stabilization. I don't know that that would be true if we were still under the Crow Family Foundation. So um, that's what happens when you come into a big system that has a commitment to thousands of people, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. So that, that is a relief to me. I hope, I hope it can remain a relief. We'll see. Um, so that was kind of first was triage. And here too, I have two boys were there in school. My husband's teaching. So kind of figuring out how the house was going to become a, a one, a three room schoolhouse. And, um, and now we're looking at what can we do? How do we create this virtual museum? We, we know how to be a museum without walls. How do we bring that into the virtual space? And so it's, it was funny. I was doing a nightly meditation on my own Facebook page because that's a particular area that I've been studying since the visit from the Dalai Lama in July of 2015. And I don't know why it didn't occur to us to just move it over to Crow. And I think that's been part of my question of you know how what is my brand as a leader and it is so closely tied to the crow museum because i've grown up there i mean it's it's you've grown up there too with me um it's very very embedded in who i am and and been a big part of my journey and so we moved it over and the number of hits are higher i mean everything is sort of exponentially grown because we moved mindfulness so we're offering six programs of mindfulness and yoga and five for mindfulness, one for yoga during the week. Um, and then, then we just started uh, Crow Unscripted two weeks ago, which is a just a, like this, a very friendly exploration of current issues and trends with the idea that it's, the Crow needs to get louder about what, what is so about our stage of the acquisition, what's next, what are we thinking about. 
Um, we've, we've posted a few of our digital programs that our tremendously brilliant curator, Jacqueline Chow, has created on the exhibition of Bailey Liu and Master Shenlong. Um, but the thing that I'm really the most excited about, Michael, is that I'm teaching again. And I'm teaching through the human resources portal at the University of Texas at Dallas. So there are 4,000 faculty and staff at UTD. A number of those people need um, online instruction to sort of make up their hours. And so we were asked to generate content for the month of April, and we offered 12 different classes this month. And I've loved it. Like, I forgot I'm a teacher, right? I've been an administrator for a long time and kind of forgot that I love the space of teaching. And so I'm doing that again in May. I'm also in this mindfulness certification program with Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield. So I'm really kind of looking at what is the, what is the liftoff going to be? And there's no perfect time, no better time to do that than in this sort of place of reset. Um, And, you know, I, I think the world will be different. We're not going to go back to normal. I'm almost calling it a preset. Like what do we need to design to be in place for us to know that we're living this life that's more closely connected between what we want to be and how we show up to the world, kind of an alignment of my word and my deed, which I would say all of that was pretty um, misaligned, unaligned. Um, My intentions weren't matching the way I wanted to live. I was going to a lot of events at night as a museum director. Um, You know, you can have, and you, you know this too, you can have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with donors all the time. And really what is, have we sat down as a university and a museum and said, where are we taking this institution and are, you know, 60 lunches and dinners in two months really going to help us. And how do we, what is, what's the intention and how, what's the outcome for that intention? And I've had like you lots of great conversations because people have time for them. So I think this is a, it is a creative time. I'm doing a lot of writing. Um, I'm doing a little bit of, I have a project on the side to launch a women's leadership group for the next six months with Doria Underwood. So that's pulling together women like me who really want to create something in this time that has deep impact both professionally and personally. So how am I going to show up to myself? And then how am I going to show up to the globe, whether the globe is big or small? So I don't know. I don't know what's next. Um, I'm working on it. I'm excited. I feel like I'm at UT Dallas for a reason. And there, you know, it's the 29,000 students and the 4,000 employees. And I know a little bit about the connections of art and healing and the compassion that is in both of that, both of those experiences. And I think that there is a, a place for that on campus. So We'll see. Well, and I think transitioning into the university setting has given you this built-in audience as well, that it's just expanded, that now yeah. you have to and the figure art. out how to, how to engage. Um, yeah, like but, we're, but I, well, I'm wondering right now, I'm proposing classes for the fall to teach students. And I'm wondering, especially if we're digital, which I, I don't know whether we'll be digital or not, um, meaning not in the classroom, I'm wondering if if community can audit those classes. Like how easy would it be to 
add on, especially if we're in a Zoom platform, add on 50 people from the community um, to come into I think if they're members of the, of the museum, then yeah. Yeah, this is the community, the community membership. And that, that's all part about being a museum director. And I think the role of a museum director in this time, the time before, uh, is really interesting. And that's kind of something that I think is really important for uh, my listeners and, and my journey in the art world is too. And I think it's been really interesting. It's been fascinating to, to see your growth and trajectory and, um, and the way that you work with your institution, because every director has their own um, responsibilities and issues and and collections and audiences that they have to figure out how to lead and guide. And for being a director of a small institution with a collection that's mostly historical mm-hmm. uh, has always, I think, been kind of a struggle. Um, or that's probably been one of your largest challenges. Uh, first of all, going, I mean, going pu- private to public is huge. And that's a transition that many museum directors don't ever have to deal with. Um, but it's something that's, that's very important. I think that's totally separate and requires a, a separate uh, skill set. But to be a museum director in the 21st century and to, you know, keep museums relevant and alive, and what, what, it'll be really interesting to see what that role is in the future, how that changes. Now with museums across the world closed uh, and laying off people and even digital programs that they're trying to figure out what the best format is. Um, the, the, the move into digital has almost killed some museums. Yeah, I, I also think we're gonna, we have this um, almost collision, second generation, third generation, of families of major collectors don't want these collections. So I think we're going to see kind of a, a we've had several offered since we moved over to UTD and, and it's not an easy yes, right? You want to say yes, we'll take your collection, but that is a very expensive um, commitment. And so um, museums are going to have to decide, are we going to have study storage as if I think collections could get larger um, I know the DMA is facing the same issue with the imminent arrival of the contemporary collections that they're receiving. And they know that they don't have the space for them as they sit today. So we really have to sort of weigh, you know, what is what is the role of the museum if it is to preserve and protect and show works of art, then the, the way we experience those works of art, will look, I think it will look very different. I think we'll see a lot more study storage. Um, I think visiting exhibitions even after this time of COVID will be different um, because the time for planning exhibitions is now and our staffs can't get together to do it. The companies that come together generally to to plan the exhibitions that are in two years aren't able to meet. So, and the opera and the theater and the symphony are having the same problem. It's not like the the doors are going to open on September the 1st and we're going to drop that exhibition and we're missing kind of the, the key planning runway time and installing. So I think we're just going to have to be really thoughtful about, um, you know, how to stay sustained, um, 
how to recognize that we're not social services. There are going to be a lot of donors that are going to shift their money toward getting people through this health crisis. And, um, but that we're here and when people are suffering, the thing that they need is, is art. And so we, we know that we're essential. We know that it's also time to be patient. So. And being essential a museum being essential each museum has their own strength and their own mission and you know like the met is a research institution their mission is to have the most advanced research of any institution in the world and to fund scholars and i mean in addition to their other uh, objectives um some are private some are you know tax write-offs the crow uh it's always it's been so amazing to see how you have made it mostly um, a place where people can gather and learn. And that's part of your mission, but also part of the function of the collection. How do you make it relevant? The, the Crow is turned into kind of a community space. And that's also part of you as a person, how you're more than just a museum director. You're not just an administrator. You're a creator. You're a cultural leader. You're a writer. You're... Um, a teacher, you do so much more. And that's kind of the challenge I think of museum directors, if they have to figure out where do they fit into their institution, but then how do they connect with the world themselves? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering kind of where, when did that decision, when was that made and how has that impacted the way that the collection lives? You know, I think um, I can actually pinpoint that to a date, which was October of 2015. And the, the thing that happened in that time, I started working with an executive coach. Um, and, you know, ship is not, and I think executive directors and, and uh, CEOs of museums are very lonely because they have to, you know, report to the board they have to manage the staff. And I have always sourced, even through the first 12 years of the museum, or 16, I've always sourced consultants. I know that there are a lot of people out there in the world um, who um, are smarter than me, have had more experience than I have, and, and I want that, that to the best of my um, ability and what I have access to. So I've always, always sought out the experts and we had, um, Nancy came in and started working with us, Dory Underwood and several of their consultants. Um, and she and I worked on repositioning my relationship with Trammell and with the board. And she invited me to look at it in a way that, I was his partner, which was like, when she first said that, I was like, I'm not his partner, you know, like he's the boss and I'm the director and that's how it is. And she said, no, you, the two of you from day one have been blazing this trail to establish this museum as relevant to the community. He doesn't have anyone else. You are his partner. And so I read him a letter and I said, I'm your partner. We're going to create a sustainable museum this is what I see and this is what I need from you. And I've completely found my own skin as a leader. And it was different after that day. It was, I showed up to him in a different way with confidence and vision. 
And I think the most important part of the story is that he trusted me to have it. You know, there was a lot of trust that the crows gave me at age 29, taking the helm. It was bumpy and it is still bumpy um, as we've arrived at the university with everything we thought we knew. Um, and so I think trust was a really important part of my success at the Crow Museum and, and being trusted to take it in a direction that felt like what the community was asking for. I think if we'd had, um, and if we said like an Asian version of the Frick in Dallas in the arts district, that would have been very hard for audiences to relate to. You know, I think, um, Certainly the Asian collections at the DMA do a wonderful job, but they're not the largest part of that collection. In fact, they're one of the smallest. And so I think maybe not one of the smallest, but, you know, if we're looking at the Japanese art, we could say that or Chinese. I think um, we had to, we had to meet them where they were. Teachers didn't have any resources in 1998 for teaching Asian art in the classrooms. And so just really just, let's just show up as the humans that, that recognize this collection doesn't have a lot of art historical content yet. We've done a lot of work in that area, especially since Jacqueline arrived and Karen went certainly, and um, we have to make it relevant. So photography shows were really important to us. Everybody's, you know, prior to having a cell phone, everybody had a camera or took pictures and now it's even more relatable. So photography, ceramics, has been a gateway exhibition. I like to call these gateway exhibitions. Um, and now we're saying this about contemporary art because people will come to see in a contemporary exhibition and you can pull through the tr traditional elements of calligraphy as our example with Master Shenlong at the moment. Or you can pull through traditional elements of fibers, which we would relate to, to Bailey Liu. And... Um, experience people want to be in an experience and um, like they are right now with Bailey well I wish they were they will be so I think um you got to meet people where they are and you got to listen to what people want and um, my big mistake was thinking that Asian community knew Asian art and in some ways their education has been limited equally or maybe more than someone growing up in a Western curriculum here in the United States. And so I think if, if you know, if, if I'm working on my, and I've got it, right, I have my own biases and my own things that I think I know and I'm wrong. Um, and I have to be very careful as a white, you know, as a Caucasian director of an Asian museum, that was one was to assume that just because you're Asian, you're going to be interested in the crow. And so um, I think there have been a lot of breakthroughs along the way. Um, I think really resetting my role in the institution as the, the, guide, the guide and the person with the vision and not in this sort of responsive relationship with Trammell. And, and it's been great. I mean, it's been great and challenging. And uh, I look forward to kind of seeing what happens in the next year. You know, now that we have this time to plan, what kind of museum are we going to build? And how will the students, um, again, the question is how to make it relevant. Because we, we shouldn't do it if we're not going to make it useful. And I love that about meeting people where they are. The other thing that I was trying to get out about the museum, meeting people where they are, and being historical and your role... Um, not every museum has yoga in the galleries or Tai Chi in the galleries or a mindfulness program or a mindfulness study program that works with veterans. Uh, and that's something that 
some museum directors would definitely poo-poo. <laughs> um, however, it's a large part of the museum's, um, I wouldn't say purpose, but uh, of its kind of operation and its engagement. True. I, um, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of signs that pointed us in this direction. Some were mine. You know, we started teaching yoga in the galleries in 2000. Some were trammels who wanted it to be a museum without walls and very unexpected. You know, the crow was unexpectedly fun. That was one of our brand strategies um, in the first 10 years. And it was true. People thought one thing and would show up and would have a different experience. But I think, um, and then I think the third, the third signpost what came from the tenants that worked in the building. So maybe a lawyer in a law firm upstairs, an accountant, they would come into the galleries and they would say over and over again, like when I, I just talked to security about this in the meeting and they were all nodding their heads, I come to the crow to get away. It's an oasis. I love to sit here and on this bench and solve a problem. I love to get away from my office and come and see a work of art and just breathe. And those were little light bulbs for me that this museum is different. You know, there's, if we are at the base of a skyscraper, what, what is our relationship, our connection to our cause in the matter? If we're literally footsteps from 2,700 people, you know, we spent the first 10 years worried about all of the communities that live 25 miles North and beyond and really, if we're, if we're up to caring about care and suffering in the world, the people we probably need to be thinking about are right there, right? And, um, you know, I would see them in elevators and notice that there were sort of these washed out, drained expressions. Um, another guide or signpost was being diagnosed personally with cancer in 2011 and noticing that there were three or four other and museum and nonprofit directors down the street with either cancer or a chronic illness. And why, you know, what is, what is our globe doing that's creating this presence of stress or anxiety? And so I just started studying it, started studying health and well-being and yoga myself. I'm a certified yoga instructor and really seeing, um, we could be a museum that doesn't care about that, but we're not, you know, we're going to be present to awaken alive to the needs of the communities right around us and beyond. Um, but we're also going to do something about it. I mean, that's, that's sort of where I come from. We have limited minutes of our lives. Um, so we might as well be working hard on, on how we're going to be together. And I want to be healthy. Absolutely. And I love hearing that the that there's accountants and lawyers and consultants walking in the museum. So lightning round, quick. Uh, I mean, some of these I already know, but I think they'll be interesting for the <laughs> listeners. Uh, number one, early bird or night owl? Um, definitely early bird. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Talking or texting? Mm, good. That's a good one. Talking. Facebook or Instagram? Mm, Facebook. What's the last book you read? The last book I read is The Piece of Wild Things by Wendell Berry, book of poems. What's your first memory in a museum? The Philbrook in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's where I kept my teeth. 
And, you know, they have a wonderful holiday exhibition that I remember with trees of all the cultures. So that was my first and wonderful, obviously, music, obvious exhibitions that I'm sure I saw too. But I remember the Christmas trees. <laughs> I was probably three. Like, yeah, I love that. That's what I remember my first visit to a museum. It was when I was five years old with my grandmother to the Dallas Museum of Art. Yeah, it changed my life. Yep. What do you collect? Um, what do I not collect? It's probably the better know. I, <laughs> I collect art. So I love having art around me. I collect books. And I collect ceramics from Puebla, Mexico. <laughs> me too. Me too. Surprise, surprise. That was an exhibition project that yes. I get to work on with you. That was so much fun. If you weren't a museum director, what would you be doing? I would be a chief mindfulness officer for my own company. <laughs> I think that's in the cards. Yes. What's the best advice you can give to someone who wants to start a career in the art world? I would say um, source your mentors. And that's a large part of where I want this to go. I want this to ultimately transform into a mentorship platform for the art world because I think that's something that's really important. And I've been so fortunate to have you as a mentor and Karen Smith as a mentor. And um, that's been so powerful and helped me to get where I am and, and where I'm going. Um, and I guess that kind of segues into my dream for the longest time, which, well, not the longest time, you put it in my cap was to become a museum director. And I also want to know what's the best piece of advice you could give someone who wants to become a museum director? I would say to not listen to tradition. So what you think you're supposed to have or have done or um, proven. And, it, and I know I'm the exception to the rule, but I also think that boards are looking for exceptions to the rule. Um, that that they are looking for diverse experience. And the, I think the most important skill that an, a director needs to have is interpersonal strength because you are a diplomat. You know, you're a diplomat to the board and you're in a space of cultural diplomacy, regardless of the collections. Um, and you're in a space of, of really getting quiet and listening to what is, what is the mission of the institution and why does it matter? And if you can sort of stay in those lanes Without sort of, um, yeah, so I think I would not, I would not listen to, what is, there's a better word that I'm thinking of, but um, like what you think is expected is not necessarily true. And a breadth of experience is, is what I'm seeing in the new hires of museum directors. So. So now we're to the final question. There's no crystal ball, but I'm going to give you a magic wand. What's your wish for the art world? Um. Great question. My wish for the art world is that all internships are paid. <laughs> that um, museum visitors understand the importance of joining the institutions they support. And that because of technology, and I think we'll learn this in this time of sheltering in place, um, that artists make themselves more accessible to communities so that there are more podcasts like this where we don't have to pay the artists, which kind of goes against what I said about the internship, but I'd like to see more accessibility to artists. 
I was on a podcast on Thursday and got to ask Eileen Fisher a question. That's shelter in place, right? That would not have happened to me three months ago. And I'd love to see us in a, in a Zoom room with Ai Weiwei asking him a question. Um, so I don't know that artists are as good at marketing themselves in that way <laughs> and creating that kind of level of, of connection and accessibility, but that's what I would love to see. Just a lot more play and interactivity between um, the artists that museums are choosing and the people that are experiencing their work. I think that's really important. Yeah, how to make art is for everyone, how to make it accessible and how to support yeah. artists because it's, it's essential. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much. This, was this so has been beautiful. Delight. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the premiere of Art Reverted. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Be sure to tune in next week for my conversation with Mark A. Reblon director of the Meadows Museum at Southern Methodist University. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon.